The Marine and the Hippie is a weekly conversation about current events aimed at presenting alternative viewpoints while looking for common ground. We are the Marine and the Hippie. Welcome to Marine and the Hippie. I'm the Hippie, and we are here for Dialogue 15, through, through, and through. Um, I was a teacher for 10 years in middle school, of middle school, and I remember substituting for a French class. And I walked into the French class. It was an eighth grade class at a school in which students had to study a foreign language starting in grade six. So these are students presumably who had studied French for uh, at least two years. And I walked in and I said, bonjour, ça va? And I got blank stares, like deers in the headlight. And one of my students who I taught, who I taught in my English class, raised their hand and they said, "Um, Mr. Netter, we haven't been taught that yet. And I I said, what? Bonjour means hello. It's like me saying merhaba in Turkish. And sava means how are you? You know, so how do you not know that? And, And it really just illustrated to me a problem in education. And and then I, I've started to reflect on that as, as an educator um, over the last, you know, 15 years. And it seems to me, from my point of view, that we have a lot of, um, a big problem in education is that the good student becomes the teacher. And the problem when a good student becomes the teacher is that they think that how they were learning works for the kids who are ha- who are having a hard time and that doesn't does not work so this the french teacher she was not when she was a student she excelled in french so she was excited about french so she went in and became fluent and then she when she went into the classroom she taught french like she had been taught french And for this now class of kids, it didn't work because they didn't understand. And she would come back into the office and say, these kids don't know how to learn. And my question is, do these kids not know how to learn or does the teacher not know how to teach? And that will be the discourse of today. Doc? Yes, uh, you probably know, uh, and maybe the audience might know as well, that I also spent a long time as a teacher. I was a college professor uh, for probably eight, I want to say eight years, give or take. Uh, I taught, you know, something I prepped something like 20 different classes, and they were in all different areas of political science, uh, political theory, philosophy. I taught some sociology here and there. I taught some history. And, I mean, it was just basically just general, generally around social sciences. And... Uh, when I was in grad school, I knew that I was going to become a teacher. That's what I wanted to do. And so I would constantly hit the grad department up for pedagogy classes because I wanted to learn how to teach. I wanted to learn the science or the method of teaching uh, in, in pedagogy. And my department was like, uh, we don't teach pedagogy here. Uh, you know, you don't need to know that because this is a research school. And so therefore you're just going to become a researcher. And even if you do go to college and teach, the only reason you're going to ever teach is so that you can be a researcher and they have to make you teach while you're doing your research. That's the most important thing. 
And I just found that that was completely wrong. I didn't want to research. I didn't want to be a researcher. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to instruct people in, in school. And so I wanted to learn different methods of reaching my students. And the response from the department was, well, you got to learn that on the job. And so I'm thinking like, okay, so you want me to spend how many years learning how to teach and how many students am I going to fail in the process of me learning something that you could just go through in a semester and give me some good reading material to teach. And then, you know, we could go from there. And so when I got into teaching, I had no idea how to teach. And it was a process of three or so years before I finally got the method. Dylan? And that, and, and you just illustrated the problem is that for those three or four years, until you figured out a system to work, you're using the system that worked for you. And if you're using the system that works for you, that's not pedagogy. That's relying on the tools that you have. Um, and those tools don't meet, meet, meet all of the students in the classroom. In fact, they, they probably meet very few. It's like the title of the show, through, through, and through. So if I'm a teacher and I assign, write me a sentence about what you do with a ball. And you write, I threw the ball. Well, okay, if you say it, we all know, we all understand, we all accept it. If, if you write, I, T-H-R-U, the ball, are you incorrect? Well, some teachers or many teachers would say, yeah, that's the wrong answer. It should be T-H-R-E-W. But then the question becomes to me as a teacher, does the student know T-H-R-E-W or are they, or do they only know the tool that is available to them, which is T-H-R-U? Because at the end of the day, language is a tool to convey meaning. And if I say I threw, if I say, if I say I threw the ball, you understand it. You don't care about the spelling. It's only when I write it as what's deemed incorrect that it becomes incorrect, even though I might be using the only one that is available to me that I know, which is T-H-R-U. And that student is actually more advanced than the student who already knows that it's T-H-R-E-W. And we'll talk about that when we come back from break. You're listening to Marine and the Hippie. Welcome back to Marine and the Hippie, Dialogue 15, Through, Through, and Through. At the uh, end of the last segment, I was bringing up the idea that the student who uses THRU to convey meaning of I threw the ball is utilizing the tools in their toolbox. And because of that, they are their brain is working at a higher level than the student who already knows that it's T-H-R-E-W. Doc, what do you think? Well, I happen to uh, subscribe to the idea that there are two different languages that we use. 
when we are writing and when we were conversing. So as we speak, you know, I will, if you actually transcribe my sentence right now directly from how I'm saying it, you'll see that there's almost no punctuation in it that belongs in a written sentence. You know, you'll find the run-ons and, and you'll find all kinds of weird like instructions. If you read it, read out what I'm saying as if it was a script, it would make almost no sense and it would probably make everybody laugh at me. You know, like this guy's a buffoon, you know, or whatever. But if we're speaking in a conversational tone and a conversational speed, you know, it makes perfect sense. And so that's one language that we we all and everyone that speaks, you know, standard American English knows exactly what I'm saying. They have no problem understanding what I'm saying. I mean, there's no loss of communication. It's a it's a one to one transfer of knowledge almost almost perfectly. Now, the written English language, on the other hand, has a number of very highly uh, formalized rules and uh, regulations which require me to have a subject, a predicate. It requires me to, you know, put my verb after the subject. I can't say threw boy the ball. I have to say the boy threw the ball, you know, in order for it to make sense. Uh, and all of these rules and regulations become a form that you follow in your head when you're writing stuff out as opposed to uh, as opposed to saying it. And so it actually limits your thought to follow this form in a written sense because you're not actually able to adequately express what you're trying to say in writing just because of the fact that there's a box that you have to fit your concept, your, your mind in. And, bef uh, uh, and the one thing I'll add to this before, uh, before I send it back over to Dylan here, is that the reason why Shakespeare had so many more words at its disposal, 40,000 words or something like that at Shakespeare's disposal, as opposed to 25,000 words for the average American or average English speaker, is simply because of the fact that he didn't let the language shape his thought. He created 15,000 new words to adequately express the thought that he was trying to convey in his, in his work. And so... This is one of the things he was known for, like a huge chunk of our language that we speak and, and write was created by Shakespeare because he didn't let the, la the language, you know, govern his thought. He let his thought govern his use of language. Dylan? As an example, Shakespeare is a great one. Here, here's, a, here's a guy who is using language to, to speak and to write. And instead of, instead of using rules and just memorizing language and using only the tools at his disposal when he needed to, he'd work around it to create something. And the student who's getting a red, a red X for writing down I-T-H-R-U, the ball, a lot of the time is using the tool at their disposal. Going back to what I was talking about at the, the beginning of the, the dialogue, you have the French teacher who succeeded in French class. This teacher was able to succeed in French class because they had the ability to memorize the vocabulary, memorize the rules, as Doc was just saying, subject, predicate, period, to make a sentence, to make a complete idea. And they were able to regurgitate or give that back to the teacher at tedium, very quickly, at speed, whenever the teacher asked. And that creates a cycle of just, well, this that's... That's the model of a good student, somebody who can learn and say, who can learn something that the teacher says, 
and then return it back to them. Oh, you want this back. But the student who's like, who, who is unable to get that in the first or second or third introduction, and they're trying though to make it correct. They're not writing, I blank the ball. They're writing, I, uh, uh, I can't remember, but this, this word, I, I see it as, as this. Are they wrong? No, they're, they're creating a workaround just like Shakespeare. And if they can defend or, or learn to understand that that's not the best answer, but it's still a correct answer because it is doing the primary tool of language, which is conveying meaning. Because we know that it's the, uh, the eye is the speaker, the ball is the direct object, and we know what's happening with the ball. You're not going through it, you are throwing it. And I think a lot of the times in the classroom and in meetings and such, the students are not being taught to learn because they're being taught by teachers who intrinsically understood how to memorize or had that ability as a hardwired, a hardwired tool at their disposal against students who don't have that ability. And neither one is right, neither one is wrong. But when that, that student becomes a teacher, and as Doc shared, shared, you know, hey, I, I, I wanted to learn pedagogy. They said, no, we're not going to teach pedagogy. And you want that teacher walks into a classroom and says, I'm here to teach. They're going to use the tools that help them succeed in school. School is not the place that they that 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 most educators didn't like. School is the place where they did like because it was a place that they had that intrinsic skill, kind of like the ingenue basketball player, you know, the basketball player or the runner or the musician. When they pick up an instrument, they are already somewhat proficient at it because at a cellular level, they understand it. When we come back from break, we'll continue with Dialogue 15 through, through, and through. You're listening to the Marine and the Hippie. I'm Dylan. I'm the Hippie from Turkey. And let me just tell you, Kolai Gelsen, may it be easy. Peace. Hey, you're listening to the Marine and the Hippie. I am the Marine, and I'm here with the Hippie. And we are talking today about learning and school and teaching with Through, Through, and Through in Dialogue 15. Uh, through, through, and through are three different spellings of the same basic word. Even though the word is three different words and it conveys different meanings when we speak it, given the context that we're using it in, when you actually write it out, is it really wrong to use the wrong word when you're writing it if that's the tool you have available to you? Uh, I mentioned that I had taught for eight years at the college level and it took me about three years to kind of find my style and I realized, number one, that every student in my class had a different experience with education, had a different way of learning. And so I tried to incorporate from a very early period three different kinds of learning, uh, audio learning and visual learning and kinesthetic learning, where, where students actually got to try some of the ideas out in my class. 
And my classes were famous for their simulations where we basically play a role-playing game. They'd serve as like the UN or something like that, and they'd have to make a decision about, you know, stopping a war in some third world country or something. Uh, but it, it allowed the students to reinforce the lessons that they had learned through their other methods of learning uh, and to also bring in students who were just completely lost from either reading or listening to lecture. And so it allowed, I think, a more full educational experience because it included all of the w different ways that students actually learn. So I was actually able to get each one of the students. But one of the big things I noticed, you know, about three years in was that the whole you know, the whole way that we conduct classrooms is that the teacher who's supposedly some sort of authority stands up in front of a class of maybe 30 or 150 people, depending on your lecture room size, and delivers this lecture like blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like basically, I mean, that's basically what it, what it is at the end of the day. It's all the same thing. It's all words that are coming out of the, the teacher's mouth. And the students are expected to grab those words and put them in their head and internalize them and put them in their own voice so that they learn and understand it. And if they don't get it the first time, we'll repeat the same lesson, blah, 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 blah. And after a certain period of time now, as the professor, I'm going to test you on what you know. And you don't really know it. That's the thing. You don't really know it. You know what I know. You don't know what you know. And so... You're, what I'm testing you on in a normal test is your ability to spit back out to me the things that I spit at you in the first place. And this is called the banking model. It's like I make a deposit in your brain with my lecture. I create a withdrawal from your brain at the test time. And the students don't retain any of this stuff at that point because they dump it out of their brain and then they're off to the next thing. It's not reinforced. It's not, they don't use it ever again. No one is going to need to know what the Eighth Amendment says, you know, in their entire life. Uh, but it's deemed important enough for me to test over. And I actually realized this as I was teaching, as I was learning how to teach. I actually realized that this is what I was doing. And so I changed, probably after the third year, I changed my testing method to undermine that whole process. To undermine this whole notion that I'm some sort of authority that you have to take everything I say as if it's the truth, put it in your brain, and then spit it back out to me. What I did was I started making my students, I gave them a list of questions. These are the 10 questions or whatever that's going to be on the test. I said, take a week to prepare them, prepare answers for them, and then we're going to have you come up and we're going to roll a die and you get to answer a random question. And if you don't like that question, you can take another roll and we'll give you another random question. And so basically I say you can use your notes in the answer, but I'm testing you not on how well you spit back out what I said, but how well you prepared to answer that question. Because when you think about the work life, no boss is going to want you to go and, and answer very difficult problems at the workplace cold without any kind of resources or anything like that. If you want a better outcome, you're going to give that worker every single resource and every single opportunity to succeed that you possibly can. So why don't we do that in the classroom? Dylan, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think thinking is education. When we're using our brain to, to come up with the answer, that is education. That, or that is learning. I think a lot of the time we think it's just regurgitation or the bank model, as you just suggested, which is I give, I give the lecture, I give the lesson, you return the information. But that's not that's not education. That's not learning. That's that's 
that's getting that that's learning how to use a tool, a pen, a cup, um, toilet paper. There's nothing. There's nothing about a higher level that's there. The higher level goes with the student who's like, ah, I have a problem, and this problem. I need to solve. I have these again. These four words. These four, the sentence. I can't. I know that it's one of these three words, but does it really matter? No, because once I speak it, the answer is correct. So even if it is the wrong answer written, it's still fifty percent correct because all you have to do is speak it, and it is correct. So, so we wind up testing these kids who are finding the workaround and owning it and answering it and using tools at their disposal disposal to build the right answer. And we're saying this is wrong because it's not the right, it's not the perfectly correct answer. Well, in my opinion, screw the perfectly correct answer if a kid's thinking, because all it is then is empowering the child or the kid or the student to say, yeah, man, you were close, <laughs> really close. So you still get the grade. You still cross the finish line. But here's the here's the the grammatically correct way, and I guarantee you that that student then turns around and goes, "Oh, cool, thanks," because they're not getting a red a red X for for trying and using tools that were correct. Doc. Yeah, we got to remember that the the purpose of education that at the beginning of public education in the 1840s and 50s in this country was to socialize children to make it so the things that they do are socially acceptable you know to make them but also to make them better workers and so just a real quick observation on this if i require you to answer a a every single time i tell you that to press a you press a that's the correct answer and you get a you know a reward as in a higher point on your a higher score on your test if you press B when I tell you to press A because I want you to press A, you're going to get a lower score. And with that comes an implicit threat of if you get a low enough score consistently enough in college, you're never going to be anything. You're going to be a bum on the, on the street. You're never going to have a job. You know That's the implicit threat that comes with you choosing to press B because you think that's the correct answer when the correct answer always was A. And so what we're doing is basically training our workers to follow unquestioningly the dictates of their boss. That's essentially what we're doing. And you will press A or I will deliver the punishment. And the punishment is a lower score and potentially a very rough life. Uh, whereas if you press A, hey, good for you. You're a good follower of instructions. You do all this other stuff. And so we're just training our workers, Dylan. And that is what Doc and I tried to do here is get you to think, get you to see that Maybe we don't just need to follow the leader, that there are other paths or other answers, or like Shakespeare, if we don't have the right answer or we don't have the right tool at our disposal to go out and create it. Um, because we are at a precipice within our society in, well, will there be even a position for us just to follow? So, um, and that becomes the question for another day. Thank you for listening to Dialogue 15 with the Marine and the Hippie through, through, and through. I am the Hippie I coming am. at you from 
Chucky. I am the Marine. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there. Uh, check us out. Make sure you check us out on MarineHippie.com. You'll find all of our social media. You'll find all back issues of the show, uh, different dialogues that we've had on various other comments. You'll also find access to Dylan's blog and my Twitter. So check that out at MarineHippie.com. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next week. Peace. Hey, this is Doc with Marine and the Hippie. I'm the Marine, and let me just say, make love, not war. Peace. For more information on the Marine, follow Doc at supernova underscore earth on Twitter, and listen to the Supernova Earth Show on Spotify. For more information on the Hippie, follow Dylan at Gezi and Me on Twitter, and read his blog at observationsfromthespectrum.org.